Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. The content in this episode might be disturbing for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. It's early 1984 in a bustling television studio in L.A. There's an audience of punks just like New Wave Theater. But unlike New Wave Theater, this ain't hokey anymore. It's a big crew, a control booth. It's a real production coming to you from KTLA. New Wave Theater's gone corporate thanks to Harold Ramis. After Peter's death, Harold introduced David Jove to a TV exec named Bill Cameron. Here's Bill. So David came in, and I found him to be uh, enchanting. The devil is a brilliant prankster, but the greatest trick he ever pulled was making David Jove enchanting to some people. Definitely not to me, but I guess some people found him endearing. Anyway, David pitches Bill a TV show idea. It's a spin on the New Wave Theater formula. What he was doing was something called The Top, and it was an entertainment variety uh, hour. Bill's interested, so he sets up a meeting for them at MGM. In the meeting, the suits have a question for David. What's going to make your show different? Tell me, what happens when the lights go up and the camera goes on? What do I see? And, and Joe, and we hadn't rehearsed this, hadn't talked about it, David said, you see 17 little ducklings, and a llama <laughs> on the set. And they're running around, and it's a set like Johnny Carson has on Tonight Show, but they are ducklings and a llama on there. And that's what you see. And it sold the show because it was so... It was clever. It was clever. It was different. The suits greenlight a pilot. It's a huge break for David. Despite its roots in public access, New Wave Theater had been a real TV show on national cable TV. But the top was going to be on a whole nother level. This was going up upscale quite a bit. This it was, was going to be, how, how big a budget was this going to be? This 
In those days, I think we were talking 300,000. In other words, a good chunk of change. Which brings us back to that TV studio in L.A. David and Harold are filming the pilot for The Top, and the pressure is on. Jove skulks around creating tension, but Harold tries to bring a sense of calm. It's thanks to him that there's a level of professionalism on the set. So Harold Ramis enters the scene and is like, okay, this is going to be a real TV production. That's Michael Dare, a film critic for LA Weekly. This is no longer your underground New Wave theater that's shown as part of Night Flight on the USA Network. This is going to be on an actual television network that's going to have commercials and you're going to be the director in the booth and there's going to have to be a script that everybody's going to have to follow. You're going to hire a writer and David says, well, I don't need a script. And Harold Ramis says to him, you're going to hire a writer. And so David Jove comes to me and says, will you be the writer the head writer of of the top. And I said, well, sure. What do you want me to do? And he says, nothing. You're not going to write a single word. I'm going to write every single word that everybody says on this show. And I'm only hiring you because Harold Ramis says that I have to hire a writer. Now that he's got a writer, all Jove needs is a celebrity host. So Harold Ramis picks up the phone and calls in a favor from one of the biggest comedians in town, a guy looking to get back to his TV roots, a guy named Cornelius. Everybody knows Chevy Chase is one of the biggest assholes on earth. You can't read anything about him without someone telling a story about what a fucking asshole he is. Nobody likes him, except me. I had the best meeting I've ever had with Chevy Chase because... Harold Ramis was in the room. Harold Ramis calls a meeting. He says, okay, David, bring your writer. I'll bring Chevy Chase. We're going to sit together and figure out what this show is. So Michael's in the room with Chevy Chase, Harold Ramis, and David Jove. Chevy stands up and starts talking. And it was hilarious and brilliant. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to be the head writer of the Chevy Chase show. Except that's not what happens. Jove puts the kibosh on every single one of Chevy's ideas. No, we're not going to do that. Oh, I don't want to do that. No, we're not going to do that. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to keep cutting back to the sound booth, and all the technicians are going to be animals. And when we cut to the audience, it's going to cut to a bunch of baby ducks. Oh, no, not more baby ducks. So we kept having meetings and meetings and meetings at which nothing was decided except that nobody was allowed to do anything if David Jove didn't tell him to do it. I wrote a monologue for Chevy. He turned it down. Chevy wrote a monologue for himself. He turned it down. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. It was all getting up to the first day of, you know, the production, the live show, and not one word had been written for Chevy Chase. Not one word. He didn't know what to do. And now they're out of time. The audience is in the studio waiting, and Chevy Chase has no script. Backstage, Jove walks up to Chevy to give his host some words of encouragement. Jove went up to him 
right before the cameras went on and put a fright wig on his head and said, okay, you're a, you're a, you're a, uh, you're a punk. You're a punk rocker. Just get out there and win. The show starts. Chevy Chase comes on stage in a shitty punk rock wig. And now, from Hollywood, California, the entertainment capital of the world, we welcome you to Attack! Surrounded by real punks, he looks ridiculous. What happens next makes the news. Chevy Chase was taping a television show in Los Angeles last night before an invited audience of punk rockers. Things seem to get out of hand, and here's what happened. Chevy comes out on stage in his stupid wig and starts improvising. It's not too long before the punks in the crowd get restless. One of the people watching is my dear friend, Durf Scratch. Durf played bass in Fear, the band that got kicked off of Saturday Night Live. Durf, to me, was the punk poster boy. That's Alan Sachs. Durf was a hard... Durf looked like a preppy. He wore saddle shoes but he was a hardcore punk. I remember one time, Durf asked me to go to his apartment and he gave me some a uh, couple of lines of speed and it burned my nose so bad that I never did speed again. So God bless Durf and thank you, man. Anyway, Durf is in the crowd for the taping of the top and he starts heckling Chevy. Come on, man, go dance. Come on, go on over there. Durf was yelling, you homo, you homo, and Chevy said, who said that? Come on up here. Tell that to me. And Durf didn't wait a second and went running up to the stage. He ran up to the apron, pushed himself up on the riser, and ran over to Chevy and kicked him in the nuts. Apparently, Chevy had just had a vasectomy, so this kick was particularly unwelcome. Other punks jump on stage, too. Pandemonium broke loose. I mean, I produced many television shows. I've never been involved where a fight like that broke out in the audience. And then Chevy Chase leaves and never comes back. Normal people would give up after a shitstorm like that, but not David Jove. He badgers Harold Ramis to help him make another pilot. Harold reluctantly agrees, but with a new host and some conditions. And this time with Andy Kaufman instead of Chevy Chase. And this time Jove isn't allowed to write anything, isn't allowed to direct, isn't allowed to... I mean, Harold actually did handcuff him to a chair in the director's booth where he had to give directions to the cameraman, to do what they were going to do. Even with Joe physically restrained, things go off the rails. Although this time, it's not completely his fault. Now, let me tell you a little about this video. It's called, uh, it's by Randy Newman, and it's called I Love L.A. And now it starts off with a bum. You see a bum, and it's all in black and white, so you think the whole thing's going to be black and white, right? But it turns out that then, the, after a few minutes of this, the thing turns to color. Okay, so that's a surprise. That's a surprise. Now, Andy Kaufman is a comedic genius. Have you ever seen him do Elvis Presley? It's fucking hilarious. But on this taping of The Top, he was not at his best. The audience might have assumed he was having an off night. But in reality, 
Kaufman was dying of cancer. Here's Ken Dow, a New Wave theater fan who was at the taping. It was obvious he was so far gone sick. He shouldn't have been there at all. I don't know why he agreed to do it. it just because he wanted to do one last performance or something. And then, you know, a week or two weeks later, he was gone. He was dead. It was Andy Kaufman's last ever TV appearance. He died in May of 1984. And the top, such as it was, ended with him, a pilot that never went anywhere. By the time they started filming The Top, it had been almost a year since Peter Ivers' murder. No arrest had been made. No one had been charged. Across the city and the scene, those who loved Peter began to move on, some reluctantly, some angrily. But one person who couldn't let things go was David Jove. With The Top, he tried to revive New Wave Theater but couldn't make it work. And all the while, he was literally living in the cave, surrounded by Peter's stuff, grisly souvenirs he had stolen from the crime scene. He was obsessed with the murder. He would answer the phone, who killed Peter Ivers, for at least a year after Peter's death. So it was like he was on this crusade to find out who killed him, and obviously that was the cover-up. He grabbed Peter's quilt, and then it was green and had blood on it. Right. And he kept it, he kept it, and he slept with it in his bedroom. All of this fed into the gossip. Could David Jove have something to do with Peter's death? Today, we try to answer that question head on and pay tribute to our friend Peter and the musical legacy he left behind. I'm Penelope Spheris, and this is Peter and the Acid King. Sometime after Peter's death, David Jove invited Don Bowles over to his place. Don was the drummer in The Germs. Anyway, here's where things get a little creepier. I'm going to hand it over to Alan Sachs for this part, because y'all know I don't do creepy. So when I talked to Don Bowles from The Germs, he told me a story about David Jove that I keep thinking about and seeing as clear as day. He invited me to come over, and he played me these cassettes and micro cassettes of psychics whom, to whom he had sent Peter's watch, the one that Peter had been wearing at the time of the murders. Apparently, along with the bloody blanket and sequin jacket, Jove also took a watch that belonged to Peter. So Don is sitting there across from David Jove. I could see that so clearly. Jove talking to Don, showing him the watch. And he kept looking at me, just like really staring into my I see David's eyes. face. Yeah, like, he's like, yeah, it's like, you know, veins are coming out, you know. The coke had obviously gone in. And he was, he was going, you know. And just, well, what do you think? So David wants Don to listen to the tape with him. Don is like, okay, but a little creeped out. You know what I mean? There was this one where the guy sounded like Peter. And he's like living a moment in time 
when this watch was last worn by the person when they were alive. He's like in a trance, right? And he's channeling this. He's like, oh, hey, how, how you doing? What's, what, what, what are you doing? Oh, hey, I, I, oh, my God, no. Oh, no, God, what are you, how are you killing me? It was the most horrifying death shrieks of a person being killed that I have ever in my life heard. And it sounded like Peter. And, and David didn't tell these people whose watch it was or anything or, or that there was a murder involved or anything, right? It sounded like Peter. This person didn't know who Peter was. This was like, a, it was the most blood-curdling stuff you could even imagine hearing. It's like watching someone you love die or something in this agonizing, awful way. There's nothing you could do. It was that bad. And David's just like looking at me like, well, what do you think? I'm like, well, David, it's like he knew the person. Yeah. And he's like, yeah. Anyway, check this one out. This is shocking and freaking weird. But Don told me that David was totally calm. Think about that. The tape appears to capture the moment his friend was killed, seemingly by someone he knew. And Jove seems fine with it. There was nothing incriminating about Jove's behavior that day with Don Bowles. To some extent, it was just Jove being Jove, an average day in the life of an occult-obsessed drug fiend. But it definitely wasn't normal. And it's the kind of story that explains why some of us suspected Jove from the very beginning. David Jove had motive, means, and opportunity. He was angry Peter quit New Wave Theater. He was already known to have been violent and an unpredictable cat. And he knew where Peter was going when he left the cave that night. He was also the guy who many say was first at the crime scene. He chimed his way past the cops, and he was the guy that took a bloody blanket, a watch, and a peak sequin jacket as though they were trophies. Given all of this, you'd think the cops would have picked David up and questioned him. But actually, they didn't have to. Here's Ed Oaks. David walked into the police station, um, you know, the next day voluntarily. He asked to meet with a detective on the case. He told the detective that he was in the country uh, illegally, and he told the cops that he didn't do it. The cops took down his statement, and they, uh, for whatever reason, they discounted David as a, as a person of interest. On the day after Peter's death... David Jove, who was apparently a fugitive from Canada, living under a pseudonym, walked into a police station to chat with the cops. He told them he had nothing to do with Peter's murder, and they sent him on his way. It's so ridiculous to those who knew Peter and David that it's laughable, literally. Here's Alan talking to former rocker and current addiction counselor Bob Forrest. I've spoken to the cold case cops. It's not in the kit's not in the case book. That they spoke to David? They didn't interview him. They didn't <laughs> What? <laughs> he was never of suspicion. <laughs> that gives even more faith in cops, doesn't it? Some people say that the cops did question Jove and that he was later dropped as a suspect. But Allen asked the LAPD directly, and they said they never took a serious look at Jove. The real mystery to me isn't why the cops dropped Jove as a suspect. It's why Jove went to the cops in the first place. He had spent decades 
being paranoid about people finding out who he was. Then all of a sudden, Peter's dead and he feels the need to reach out and tell the authorities his secrets. Why is that? Maybe he was worried about his dead friend and wanted to help with the investigation. Or maybe he wanted to stay close to the cops so he could stay one step ahead of him. That's one possibility. Or maybe Jove was trying to get ahead of any questions by acting like he had nothing to hide. Whatever the reason, it was an odd thing for him to do. But was Jove really capable of murdering someone? According to some people, maybe. He was rumored to have a very violent past. He'd also, in the past, when he was raving back in the cave days, he used to hint that he'd somehow accidentally killed somebody. That's Maggie Abbott, the agent who brought Marianne Faithful to the cave. She was Jove's friend. According to her, Jove told her straight up, I killed a guy. No, not Peter, a different guy before that. It was tied in with with the fact that he'd taken a huge overdose of LSD because he had it in the fridge and the, the bottle tipped over and it, it dribbled down into a cake and he ate the cake, a chocolate cake, he'd ate the cake. And when the cops apparently questioned him about the crime, he had been too high to answer. He um, allowed the cigarette to burn down and burn his fingers and he sat there and it was burning his flesh and they were so... It, it persuaded them or convinced them that he was too high to make any sense. Well, that's one way to get out of jail. And that's how he got away with whatever it was he got away with. The idea that Jove would have confessed something to Maggie is interesting because to confess implies that you think you've done something wrong, that you have a moral code. Here's Nicholas Schreck, a friend of Jove's. He and Jove both shared an interest in the teachings of Aleister Crowley. And according to Crowley, killing someone wasn't necessarily something to feel guilty about. I also think, and this is more of an intuition, that Jove, like Crowley and other people of that ilk, would think that taking a life would be like a sacrifice. And in, in almost like an ancient shamanic tribal way, that he would be taking power by taking a life. Crowley taught that power was assumed through the exchange of energy, but he also taught that taking power wasn't immoral. In Crowley's view, there was no difference between consensual sex and sexual assault, or natural death and murder. In my view, Crowley had his head up his ass so far he was looking at brown wallpaper. I think that this is the way... Jove thought about things. I'd, I'd think whatever it was, it probably wasn't strictly uh, uh, impulsive hatred or criminality. It struck me when the murder happened that he would be more than capable of doing it because I don't think he had any moral sense whatsoever. On the night before his death, Peter Ivers quit New Wave Theater. It was a major blow for the show. But was that enough to cause Jove to murder his friend? Maybe Jove was so spaced out on drugs and Aleister Crowley that he wasn't thinking straight, that he followed Peter back to his loft, broke in, and killed Peter in his sleep. Then, in an effort to cover his tracks, Jove ran to the cops and 
offered to help find the killer. At the end of the day, it's just another theory of the case. No witnesses have ever placed David Jove at Peter's loft that night. Maybe the biggest reason to doubt Jove as the killer was that Peter's death was a huge blow to Jove's creative aspirations. It put a definitive end to New Wave Theater, and Jove's career never recovered. In any event, if David Jove did kill Peter, he never confessed. Or did he? Here's some clips from the last episode of New Wave Theater. As you'll hear, Jove edited audio from news reports about Peter's death into the episode. Meanwhile, what's playing out on screen is creepy as all hell. What's the meaning of life? Police are still looking for leads in the murder of 36-year-old musician Peter Ivers. Our Bill Van Amberg talks about that case now and gives us this portrait of Ivers, who was a pretty interesting man. They knew best was the irreverent zany host of New Wave Theater on cable, a showcase for New Wave music. And- in that last episode of New Wave Theater, after Peter died, Jove is fucking creepy. He's wearing this rubber mask, just staring into the camera. He cries, but the mask distorts his features. I don't know what he was thinking doing this. It's really disturbing to look at now. He wore the mask outside for like a week after that. But eventually, The mask came off, and David went back to the cave. He never made another TV show after the top. David Jove died in 2004 of cancer. If there's any hard evidence that he killed Peter, it's lost to history or hidden inside the LAPD's case file. Today, many people who know Peter Ivers know him through New Wave Theater. There are hours of footage of Peter hosting the show, performing those weird monologues, interviewing the bands, but all the while, he's playing a character, a version of himself filtered through David Jove. Peter's music, on the other hand, is an expression of his true self. Way back in episode two, we played a clip of him singing In Heaven at a Party. This is how I remember Peter. Direct, sweet, confident. Here's Mark Mothersbaugh of Devo, who used to perform in heaven at their shows. I think he contributed to the, the part of music that was forming in uh, our community in L.A. at that time. He was into pure art and pure ideas, and I think... L.A. was lucky to have him when we did. He was very artistic, and his ideas were very artistic. And, you know, I I think he wasn't, like, uh, tied down by trying to make a hit record or trying to, you know, see if he could get on the radio. Jello Biafra of the Dead Kennedys agrees. A lot of that had to do with the uniqueness of Peter's voice. As long as you're doing the minute you open your mouth... People know who it is. And one way to do that is if your voice is incredibly and possibly even deliberately obnoxious. And it's not as though Peter's voice was that different from mine either. So I would say he was actually crept in there as one of the formative influences of my own voice. My sense in retrospect is that Peter represented something, a kind of an intersection 
between popular entertainment, a new kind of creative energy. It wasn't copying things, but was actually using the tools to make things that were fresh, yet not being a kind of snob about trying to reach an audience. That's Ron Howard. Peter wrote the theme for Ron's first movie, Grand Theft Auto. The mere fact that he was there kind of writing the theme on a harmonica just tells you that he had confidence that these things could be approached in a new way. There was a dimension to what he was offering popular culture that um, was, um, you know, suddenly a bit limited. His music was hard to define, sitting somewhere between genres. It was cool and strange and experimental. During Peter's life, that limited his commercial appeal. But a funny thing happened between 1983 and now. The culture caught up with Peter. You can hear Peter's influence everywhere. That's partly because many of the people he touched went on to have towering creative careers of their own, and they have kept his memory alive. One of Peter's early credits was In Heaven, a song he wrote for David Lynch's film Eraserhead. Now, here's a song from Lynch's TV show, Twin Peaks. It aired almost 10 years after Peter's death. Sounds like Peter, doesn't it? Here's film critic and writer Kayla Janice. Peter Ivers was an incredible creative influence on everybody he ever met. When he moved out to L.A. originally to score Tim Hunter's AFI movies, um, Tim Hunter, who, who was a writer-director who would end up writing um, the great film Over the Edge and then directing River's Edge in the 80s, so these these really iconic and important teen youth in revolt or teen angst films. But when he moved out to Los Angeles, he had a girlfriend for many, many years named Lucy Fisher. And she, uh, you know, as Peter's pursuing his sort of independent musical projects and stuff like that, she got a job originally as a script reader at United Artists and then quickly sort of rose through the ranks as a film executive. Peter's girlfriend, Lucy Fisher, has played an important role in cultivating Peter's legacy. And as she progressed in her field, she started hiring all of Peter's friends. So basically, all these musical influences, all these filmic theater influences, basically she has admitted this herself, that she knew everything because of Peter. She knew all about music because of Peter. And was able to use her position to give opportunities to a lot of these people that kick-started their own careers or gave them, you know, gave us movies like Caddyshack, you know, like like Harold Ramis and Doug Kenny from uh, National Lampoon and Saturday Night Live. Like, even when Lucy Fisher was heading up Zoetrope Studios and she arranged the private screening that eventually got David Lynch the job to direct The Elephant Man... A few years ago, the record label RVNG got the rights to Peter's music and released the compilation Becoming Peter Ivers. 
Here's Jello Biafra. Now that I hear Becoming Peter Ivers, all those demos are much more smooth and honing his voice more to make it more accessible to a pop, if not even middle-of-the-road audience. I don't know, which makes me wonder all the more why, when he had his big chance to make a Warner Brothers album, he made Terminal Love first instead of what became the second Warner's album first. All of it makes you wonder what could have been. I also wonder what might have happened with him as far as uh, people not just looking at him as this goofy guy they had to put up with for New Wave Theater, although a lot of people who tried to dial in on those raps at the end realize, my God, this guy is a heavy dude, and he's more than a little brilliant, too. I wonder how things might have gone for him if he had started putting out his own records himself or uh, gone with an independent or something who wanted to present him as he was. You know, whether he might be more remembered or remembered differently and more in depth today. I was delighted that there there was some things out there, but I, I wish that there were more. And I know that you know, some people, including my mom, have these old VHS tapes and probably audio tapes and archives that they don't <laughs> really know what to do with. That's Violet Ramis, Harold and Anne's daughter. You know, I, I would love to see all of his archive out there and made public so people could not only, you know, understand and experience his music, but just really see who he was as a person because he was involved and interested in so many things and he really you know studied and just seemed passionate about you know everything he was doing if you're interested in exploring peter's full artistic legacy to an extent you can lucy fisher donated peter's personal archive to harvard it makes you wonder what would peter think of all this Here's Mark Mothersbaugh again. I think if Peter was still here right now, he you would be looking back at him and saying, my God, that guy blew Don Ho out of the water. He's the best performer we've ever had here in Las Vegas. And he would, uh, everything from Cirque du Soleil to, uh, to The Price is Right, he would have pulled in every piece of high and low art and exhibited them and uh, celebrated them. Some of Peter's biggest commercial successes have happened after his death. Here's his songwriting partner, Franny Goldie. Every song that we wrote, maybe minus one or something, something happened with it, whether it was recorded. Um, I went to two major song festivals, one in Korea and one in Japan, and I won awards for both songs. I sang them live. One of them I sang with a 50-piece orchestra. He would have just been blown away to hear his song, his his words and and everything, you know, sung with this 50-piece orchestra in the Budokan in Japan. I mean, he would have been over the moon, over the moon. And I remember, like, instinctively, I did, it didn't even, I didn't even have to think about it. When I finished the song, and here I was, like, I don't know how many thousands of people that place holds. And it was, for me, a, an amazing experience that I would never have had. 
I finished the song and I looked up and I said, love you, Pete. Here's the thing. I spent 40 years wondering who killed Peter Rivers, and I talked to everyone I could think of about it. I was hoping there was something someone would say that would be the smoking gun. It's hard. David Jove was such a big character, and Penelope and I would not have gunned this at all if he was still around. It's one of the first conversations we had about this show. You said to me, is David still alive. Mm-hmm. And I said, no. And you said, do you remember what you said? I probably said, good. You said, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> Is that right? I'll do the show. If when you knew he wasn't alive, you said, <sighs> you said, I'll do it. And do you remember what you, what you said about him? Did I do? I know what I think about David, but you go ahead and tell me what you told I me, said. You because told, I don't remember. Well, you told me he was one of the, first of all, you said, you know who I've met who I've been around, where I grew up, mm. and that guy is one of the scariest fuckers I've ever met. I'm going to say the scariest. The scariest. Yeah, that's that's exactly... I don't scare easy. That's what, I, I, that's what I'm saying, I know. Yeah? Yeah, no, and you were scared of him too, so it's pretty fucking crazy. I remember walking... I was too close to all of this. I really cared about Peter, and cared about Jove, and about the scene. Maybe I was too close to see what really happened. And maybe I just liked hanging out at the cave too much. Cuvassier and Blow. After all these years, this mystery remains. I think what this case needs is fresh eyes, fresh perspectives. Regardless, I think Peter would just want people to appreciate his art. So go out and listen to his music. I think you'll like it. I know you'll like it. There's something in there for everyone. Go watch New Wave Theater. It's weird as hell, but it's a piece of history. I mean... Look, I'll just say it. For years, I've been absolutely certain that David Jove killed Peter Ivers. Now that I've learned all the available facts, I'm not so sure anymore. But maybe there's someone out there listening who does know the truth. If you have information on Peter Ivers' homicide, please reach out to the LAPD. The tip hotline is one 1- 877 lawful that's 18775293855 this is peter and the acid king bye peter we miss you peter and the acid king is based on interviews recorded and researched by alan sachs It's produced by Imagine Audio, Alan Sachs Productions, and Awfully Nice for iHeartMedia. I'm your host, Penelope Spheris. The series is written by Caitlin Fontana. Peter and the Acid King is produced by Amber Von Schassen. The senior producer is Caitlin Fontana. And the supervising producer is John Asante. Our project manager is Katie Hodges. Our executive producers are Ron Howard, Brian Grazer, Cara Welker, Nathan Clokey, 
Alan Sachs, Jesse Burton, and Katie Hodges. The associate producers are Laura Schwartz, Dylan Kainrich, and Chris Statue. Co-producer on behalf of Shout Studios, Bob Emmer. Sound design and mix by Evan Arnett. Fact-checking by Katherine Barner. Original music composed by Alloy Tracks. Music clearances by Barbara Hall. Voiceover recording by Voice Tracks West. Show artwork by Michael Deere. Special thanks to Annette Van Duren. Thank you for listening. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. What's out there is unknown. So at UC San Diego, out we go. Because to take on the challenges of the here and now, you got to get your feet wet, your eyes open, and your mind out there, way out there. Turning the unknown into cures, culture, and connections with each step forward. So pack a bag, a notebook, and some sandals, and get ready to look far and think further. UC San Diego. Learn more at ucsd.edu.